Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Last week we had Brother Robert Grinley, Rob Grinley here and Mary, and they were a tremendous blessing, I know, to you. They were to us, both in the message and just spending time with them. There's something about missionaries. They're, they're, they have no, you know, you don't walk away from everything here and go where they go unless you really have, you know, there's a pure heart there. And I know we all, most of, many of us do too, but it's just there's no pretense there. There's no, you know, no big ministry, no public thing, you know. They're out where the rubber hits the, meets the road. And there's something about that that allows the Spirit of God to work in a way that just touches us. And I was so, so blessed to have them. But two weeks ago, uh, we kind of interrupted, or I don't know whether we ended or interrupted this series we were doing on spirit, soul, and body, because I really felt the Lord impressing on me to get into this subject. And it is, um, it's about spiritual warfare. And uh, there's a lot of crazy things out there back in the in the 80s, you know, people were getting in airplanes and fatigue clothes and flying over cities and doing crazy chants and things like that. That's just craziness. Just read, we need to read our Bible. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. But there's a warfare that's going on. And we talked about the fact that, that Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, having uh, basically as a letter to encourage them and correct them. And he's some of the most, this is, this, this is, if I had to have, I'm in a desert island, and I only had, could have one book of the Bible, this is it. Because it, it's, it's complete gospel. If I could have only one chapter, it would be Romans chapter 8. But if I got only one book, it would be Ephesians. And, and, and so Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians church and starts out by telling them, reminding them who they are in Christ and what God's done for them and, and, and what's awaiting them, that, there's a, that God, he's been praying for them, that there is a, there's an inheritance that they have together with all the saints. Hey, how many like an inheritance? One, two, three, four, five, seven. Just God's watching. Laura's <laughs> got two hands up. <laughs> so there's an inheritance that we have, and then he talks about spiritual blessings, and then he talks about the responsibility that we have as a result of that, and he gets into some of the most significant teachings that are in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament. He gets over into end of chapter 5 and talks about walking in love and imitating God. And, and then he gets really specific and talks about how husbands are to treat their wives and wives are to treat their husbands. And he said, but that's an example of how Christ relates to the church. He goes into chapter 6 and he talks about fathers, how they're to, to, to uh, treat their sons and how children are to respect their parents. And then he talks into the master-servant relationship, which, by the way, is boss-employee relationship. So... Um, and then he launches into what looks like a new subject. It's in verse 10. And he says, Finally, my brethren, which means he's ending it up, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, having taken, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, taking the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Whew. 
That is about the armor of God. So we're talking about the armor of God, but you don't need armor if you're sitting on a beach with a glass of iced tea, you know, and some suntan oil. You need armor if you are in a war. And Paul is telling them, having given them this encouragement, then some correction, some challenges, he ends by telling them they're in a war. And the thing that we often overlook and forget is this is not just written to the Ephesian church, but it's written to us today. You are in a war. And if you don't recognize you're in a war, you can end up as a casualty of it. Up until World War I, by and large, the history of warfare is it was fought by professional soldiers out on battlefields. And occasionally the battlefield would involve a farm or some, some buildings, but by and large, it was fought only among professional soldiers, soldiers that either had been enlisted, scripted, or had, been, had, had uh, uh, you know, signed up. But they knew they were soldiers, and they were trained for it. They were, they, they were given the, the arms of war, they were given the, the, the uniform of war, and they had, there was an order and a rank and discipline and training and all of that so that they would have a much better chance of winning the war. And they also understood that they were in a war because before they got on the battlefield, they went through some kind of basic training. How many of you have been in the military? You notice they didn't just sit you out, stick you out on the battlefield. They took you to something called boot camp. And the main purpose of boot camp was to wake you up and make you realize that you were not a civilian anymore, but you were now being prepared for war. And one of the things they would make you do is crawl under live ammunition being fired over your head so that you got a taste of what it was like to be shot at. But you knew that was going to happen. So you would be prepared for it and you wouldn't be shocked. It's like, oh my goodness, they shot bullets at us today. Well, you're a soldier being trained. And when you're out on the battlefield, my goodness, they're shooting at us. Duh. It's war. That's what they're going to do. They don't like you. Maybe you're shocked, but when you're a soldier, the other side doesn't like you. They want you dead. And for some people, it takes a while to wake up and realize that. Because until you have a full realization of it, you don't fight for your life. Now, one of the things that happened around World War I, and these started with World War I, is that the battlefield moved into the cities. And in the cities, there were civilians, and they were being shot at. Minefields were being laid in the city. Bombs were being dropped and going off. And they didn't ask for it at all. Not only didn't they ask for it, they weren't trained for it, they weren't equipped for it, they weren't dressed for it. But the reality was, it was there. Now, I've never been through that, and I don't particularly want to have that come to my hometown. But if it does, I want to make sure I'm awake and realize, this is war. And Paul is writing to them to tell them that there's a war going on it's not guns, it's not rockets. In his age, it wasn't arrows and it wasn't spears because it was a different type of warfare, fought out of a different realm. Now, when we studied the spirit, soul, and body, we talked about the fact that there are two different realms of existence. 
the spirit realm and the physical, natural, material realm. And what Paul's talking about here is there is a warfare that's going on that's going on in the spirit realm, but it affects this realm of existence. Now, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 12, because this is the verse that I felt the Holy Spirit call my attention to. What did I say? Ephesians 12? Yeah. <laughs> not only is it in Ephesians, it's not 12. A- Acts 20. Now, where that came from, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Acts chapter 20. Now, Acts chapter 20 is, is, is in a story where the Apostle Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. If you read the earlier chapters, you'll see that, that, that prophets have been speaking to him in every city he stops, that when he gets to Jerusalem, chains await him, that he's going to be arrested and he's going to be maltreated. And Paul says, basically, this is what Jesus told me was going to happen. So Paul knows that when he finishes this journey and gets back to Jerusalem, that he's going to be arrested and tried for heresy. So, and understand also that when Paul started these churches, he wasn't in town for a week-long crusade and then left, you know, some people in charge. That he would spend two, sometimes three years there leading people to the Lord, witnessing, then doing studies, making sure that they were well-grounded, then making sure that there were leaders that were appointed before he would move on to another city, which means he had developed a close relationship with these people. And so in Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way back. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I just want to point something out to you. But he stops in, 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 the, in the port city, and, and he sends to... Ephesus, which is inland, for the elders to come out because he wants to give them some instructions, pray with them, and then say goodbye to them. Well, let's go look a little earlier. Verse 17, But from Miletus he came to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what matter I also lived among you. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, what happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So there were trials and tribulation while he was teaching there. Verse 20, And how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is impelling me to go. Bound in Spirit uh, to Jerusalem, knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now look at this attitude. This verse is, is the heart we're supposed to have. But none of these things move me. I know they're going to arrest me. I know I'm going to be beaten. I know I'm going to be falsely accused. But none of those thing, these things move me. Wouldn't that be a nice testimony? None of these things that he throws at me move me. Well, it can be. Nor do I count my life as dear. By the way, that's the key to none of these things moving you. That's why Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. The cross is a place of death. Jesus said, unless you lose your life for my sake, you won't gain it. 
And if you try to hold on to your life, you will lose it. And so we have, when we come to Christ, we are in the process. We make a commitment that we're then in the process of living out. And that commitment is to surrender our life to him. That's the dying that he's talked about. And Paul had grown in that process. If you read Philippians chapter 3, it is, he hadn't completed it yet. He says, I don't count myself yet having fully apprehended it. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the upward call of the God, upward call of the goal of the prize, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, I haven't arrived there yet either, but I press on. But here he says, I don't count my life as dear to me. Why? That's why none of these things moved him. Because the only weapon Satan has against you is to affect your life. And if you've died to yourself, he can't affect you. There is one place in Providence tonight where I guarantee you no one's feeling sorry for themselves. That's the city morgue. Because they're all dead. When you've died to yourself and your will and your desires and your rights and your stuff, when you've died to those things, there's nothing he can hurt. Because you've given it all to the Lord. I count my, I do, nor do I count my life as dear to myself so that I might finish my race with joy. So in all that he went through, he did it with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed now I know that all of you among whom I have gone pre- preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I've done what I was supposed to do. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole gospel of God. Now, this is the verse that the Lord called my attention to. Now, by the way, the Ephesians are the same people that the book we're studying was written to. So Paul is now saying to them, before he's written the book, this I know is what's going to happen to you when I leave. Well, then why did he leave? How, how uncaring of that was to him, was that of him? That he would leave this church that he loved so much, knowing what was about to happen? Well, let's read what's about to happen. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So these were like the pastors of the church. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things, that means misleading things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day, with tears. First question is if Paul really loves these people and knows that when he leaves that this terrible thing's going to happen, how could he leave them? This is a very important principle of ministry to learn. Ministry is not serving people. Now let me finish. 
before you go to pick something up to throw at me. And make sure if you're listening to this, you don't turn it off now and send me some email or letter. Ministry is not serving people. Ministry is serving the Lord. And if we will truly serve the Lord, He will serve people through us. Because if Paul was serving people, he would have gone to Ephesus and made sure this didn't happen to them. But when the Lord told Paul that he was to go to Jerusalem, his responsibility was to obey the law and to leave the people in the Lord's hands because the people are his, they're not Paul's. Everybody with me? I haven't committed heresy. Okay. All right. Next thing I want you to see is that the wolves he's talking about here are not four-legged. The wolves he's talking about here are two-legged. And in reality, what we're going to see, what Paul recognizes, is that it's something behind the people. But notice this. He says, you're going to find, I know, he's not saying I'm guessing or maybe, he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And of course, the images, which is over and over again that's used for the church and for believers, is that we are sheep. And so wolves hang around the outside of a flock. They don't just run into the flock. They're looking for an opportunity. And as long as there is a strong leader there with the authority that God gives, then they'll hang around the outside just looking maybe for a stray sheep that would wander away. But Paul is encouraging them as leaders to be strong because his leadership is now ending there. And he's encouraging these leaders to be watchful and to be strong because he says, when I leave, what's going to happen is there are going to be wolves that have been lurking around the outside. They're going to feel emboldened by my leaving to come in among the flock and try to devour the sheep. Well, you can recognize wolves from sheep because they don't wear the same coat. But then the next verse is interesting. Also, that means in addition, from among yourselves, men, now I didn't plan this at all. This just went off in me before the service. Men from among yourselves will rise up speaking perverse things with the intention of drawing disciples away after themselves. And therefore, leaders, here's what you must do. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you, everyone, night and day with my tears. Now, my brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to be, be, build you up and to keep, give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Now, go back to the book of Ephesians. And now we have a little bit of background. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. We talked about that before. There is a warfare going on, and you are in a warfare. Whether you like it or not, doesn't matter. The devil didn't ask you. God didn't ask you. 
It's not one you sign up for. It's one you entered into. You were in it when you were physically born. You changed sides when you were born again. But the whole process of your life was still involved in spiritual warfare to keep you from being born again. Which shows you what we've talked about before. That the power of God is infinitely greater than the power of the devil. Otherwise, none of us would be here tonight. But we need to recognize we're in spiritual warfare. And the goal of this warfare is to pull you out. We just saw that. And to separate you and get you alone. Because alone, a sheep is no match for a wolf. There's a wonderful video, which I, I may show at some point when I find, get somebody to edit it for me. And, and it, it's, it, it was uh, Tony Cook, when he was here, showed, uh, told me about it. And it's taken at one of the national parks in, in Africa. And it's, it's, a, it's a scene that's, it runs about eight minutes, so it's kind of long. And this, it's a person going through this park. And the parks in Africa are not like Roger Williams Zoo here. I mean, the animals are in the wild, and so are you. And, and um, this person with a video camera starts the movie with this pride of, elephant, of, 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 of uh, lions that are lying, but they're not just lying lying around, you can tell that they're, they're eagerly watching something. And then the camera goes over and there's this, there's this um, herd of like a buffalo, an African buffalo with, you know, the horns that go up like this. They're big animals. And, and they're just kind of wandering around, just meandering around. They don't see the lions over there. They don't recognize that there's an enemy that's sizing them up. And so as they get within a certain distance from these, these, these uh, uh, lions, they realize, and the leaders turn around, and they start running the other way. But there's a little baby that's slower than the rest, and what the lions do is the lions pull him out of the herd and jump on him and drag him down to the river. That's an incredible scene, and I'm going to tell you the end because otherwise you might be horrified by it. He survives. And in the middle of this, you've got the lions pulling on him from two ends. And then at one point, the lions all get on one side. And if, if things can't get, maybe you've had a day like this. <laughs> things can't get worse. Listen to this. A crocodile comes up out of the river and grabs the other end of this baby. And now there's a tug of war between a crocodile and between this pride of lions trying to win this little baby, whatever it was. I don't know how he survived. Eventually, the camera pulls back and turns around, and now this herd has slowly turned around and is walking back towards this scene. I guess what happened, they didn't realize the baby was, had been pulled out. And slowly but surely, the herd surrounds the lions. And they're about six, eight feet high. And... In a few moments, the lions realize that they're surrounded. By this time, the crocodile lets go. And now the lions are still fighting over it. One of the, these animals gets emboldened and comes in with his horns and flips one of the lions up in the air. And the lions are still... Eventually, what happens, the lions release this baby. He runs off, and the herd continues to stalk the lions. 
And slowly but surely, the lions back off, and you can see them. They don't quit because they're going, one's going over here, one's going over here, and probably the, the lead of these animals starts chasing them away because the lions were cowards on their own. Now, that reminds me of a scripture. Peter says, Satan goes about like or as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In other words, he can't just devour anybody. He's got to find somebody that's weak and alone. One of the reasons the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, especially as you see the day drawing nearer of the Lord, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves. There is strength when we come together. We sing that song that, you know, I need you, you need me. That is truer than you'll ever imagine. We need one another because there's an adversary out there. And it's not just one, it's principalities and powers. We don't have to be afraid. Paul doesn't tell them to be afraid. He says, watch. Those are the wolves. But Satan's subtler than that. Paul says, there will also come up among you those that want to devour by drawing away. Why does Satan want to draw people away? So that they're out there on their own. You are no match for Satan on your own. I am no match for Satan on our own. Jesus did not handle Satan on his own. He used the word of God. He didn't fight him in his own strength. Now let's read down through this with that background. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. So the thing we saw last time is the first mistake we often make once we realize there's something going on is we try to be strong in ourselves, Or maybe not ourselves, but maybe somebody else we call. We're looking for strength. Now it's, it's, it's fine to look for comfort. It's fine to look for counsel. It's fine to look for encouragement. But it doesn't tell you to get strength from a brother or sister. It says to get your strength from the Lord because He's strong enough to overcome your adversary. He's already done it. We saw that last time. We saw that the war's already been won. It's the battles that you and I are fighting. The, the end of the war has been determined. But what happens to us is still in the mix. I'm not talking about whether you go to heaven. I'm not talking about that. Because the battle's not going on up there. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We'll be talking about that armor, but we're looking at the battle first of all. Notice that where God has available to you, we talked about this last time, where God has made available to you His power, all that Satan has to work against you are His devices. 
Now he's good at it. He's experienced at it, and we cooperate with him. But if you begin to understand who the sides are in the war and what the weapons are and what the rules are, you've got a much better chance of winning. Because most of us just walk out into the middle of the battle zone, step out on the minefield, and boom, a bomb goes off. We say, oh, what's this cute little pineapple? Pick it up and play toss with it. And then boom, it goes off. How did that happen? Well, you see, in the army, when you're in boot, they give you some manuals to read. This is a manual of war. Tells you who the sides are. It's not complicated. John 10.10 lays it out as clearly as it can be. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. And that more abundantly, Satan's come to steal, kill, and destroy. So all you got to do is step back and look, am I being stolen from, killed, or destroyed? Or is this life and life more abundantly? It's not complicated. It takes theology to confuse it. Remember, Jesus said you got to come to him like a child, not a Ph.D., Nothing wrong with education, nothing wrong with degrees, as long as they don't get in the way of your walk with the Lord. Yes. Don't take my coat off. This is good. <laughs> this is serious stuff. Because we're all in some battle right now of some kind. Some of the battles you're in, you don't realize it's got a spiritual root to it. I have sensed this year, and my wife and I, I've sensed it increased. But see, the grace of God's there also. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So we know that our adversary is the devil. For we do not wrestle, that's fighting, against flesh and blood. So we see we're in a wrestling match, a fight but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age and a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Boy, is that a mouthful, but is it so important? That means that your enemy is not someone wearing flesh and blood. It's not your spouse. It's not your neighbor. Not the person sitting next to you. It's not your pastor or your pester. <laughs> the enemy that comes against you are spiritual powers in heavenly places. However, we just saw in Acts chapter 20 that those spirits will use people. Say, no, pastor, I thought we're born again. We can't have demons. Oh, no. If you give them way, they will take the way. Let me show you something. Keep something here. This is Wednesday night. We can, we can just follow the Holy Spirit. Let's go to um, uh, James chapter 3. Now, this may get a little touchy, so I'll just prepare you ahead of time. Verse 13. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Envy, jealousy, and strife have their origin in demons. That doesn't mean you're demonic if you are dealing with jealousy and envy. What it does mean is that jealousy and envy is being fed by demonic forces. Now that's good news because we have authority over demonic forces. And what they will use is your own personality weaknesses. All of us have weaknesses in some areas. Maybe it's insecurity. Maybe it's some fear. And they will play on those in order to get you to give entrance to them. That doesn't mean you're possessed by them. But you can be influenced by them. And what I'm trying to show you is if you've ever struggled with envy, jealousy, or strife, you're struggling ultimately with a demon of some kind. That's what... The Bible says here in James. Now, don't go out of here looking at people funny. Because the Bible says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. With the same measure you use to judge others. <laughs> what it should do is help you to pray for that person, maybe at work or maybe in your household, who's giving you trouble because they're being affected by forces that are not human. Yes, that's right. All right, let's go back to Ephesians. It is vital in a war that you know who your enemy is. Because one of the things that an enemy wants to do is get you misdirected. There's a thing about warfare now, and there are people here that are trained in warfare know much more about this. I think it's called the cloud of war, where there's confusion in a battle. Fog of war, okay. Fog of war, where there's confusion as to who's, you know, see, when they had clear battle lines, you know, the British lined up in red, and the, and the, the you know, the... The Americans were in green or whatever they were wearing, you know, you know and there's a, there was clear who the enemy was. But in a, in, in, in a street fight, when it's from house to house, you know, and, 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 you're, and you, don't, you turn a corner and there's dust flying, you don't know who that guy is, you know, 30 yards away. All you know is he's got a rifle aimed at you, and it would be instinctive maybe to fire at him and then discover, oh my goodness. Or we hear reports all the time of, you know, bombs being dropped in the wrong place and we have, you know, our own soldiers were hit, and it's tragic. But it is, you know, it's, it's, it's part of what happens in war. Because in that fog, you lose touch with who the real enemy is. You, mean, you know the enemy's identity, but you lose touch with who this one is you're having direct contact with. And that's, in spiritual warfare, one of Satan's major devices. Because if he can get you mad at that person that's mad at you, if he can get you envious or jealous or in strife with that person didn't treat you right according to you, then you're not going to take aim at the real enemy, are you? Instead, what you're going to do is take aim at a brother or sister 
a family member. That's like a thief coming in your house at night and you shooting your brother. So that's why the enemy doesn't have to work so hard because he gets us doing his fighting for him. And some of us are just so prone to it, it doesn't take much. So what I want you to see tonight, first of all, you're in a war. And the individual battles you may be going through, whether they're financial or just relational or whether it's just how you're feeling discouraged and whatever it is, understand this, that ultimately behind that, there is a spiritual force trying to get you to quit. Because we'll see in a week or so, Paul's goal is simply to get him to stand. If you stand in the end, you win. Because remember, the war has been won. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual horse of witness in heavenly places. Now let's go over quickly to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to give you some scriptures here. We won't have time to really get into them. Verse 21, talks about the power, verse 19, I think we read this last time. God, Paul's praying that God would open their eyes of their understanding, that they would see the exceeding, the, the, the hope of their calling for their life is in Christ Jesus, the glory, the inheritance was from the saints. There's three things here. And the third is the, verse 19, the exceeding greatness of His power, which He displayed towards us when He raised Christ Jesus from the dead, which He worked with Him, verse 20, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in right hand in heavenly places. That's a place of victory. Far above, verse 21, all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age that is to come. So our Lord has already gained victory over Him and is seated in Him in heavenly places. Chapter 3. Verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be known to the church of the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord whom He made bold access and confidence through faith in Him. I don't have time to get into the details of it, but what he's, this verse is saying is He's using His grace in your life to prove something to the principalities and powers that are in heavenly places. He's not using your perfection. He's using His grace to prove what His grace will do, not what His power will do. His power has already been proven. Colossians chapter 1. I want to leave you on an up note so that you're not just you're in a war, but you see that it's already been fought. Colossians 1. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Verse 14. Colossians 2, excuse me. Verse 13. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him. We just talked about how he had victory. Now, this is the victories won for us. Having wiped out the handwriting, the requirements that was against us, which are contrary to us, having taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed, King James says, stripped, 
principalities and powers and made a public display of them, spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The word disarmed there or stripped is what the practice that they would do when they conquered an army. What they would do is this. When they conquered an army in the old days, they would have them, the defeated soldiers line up on one side, the victorious soldiers lined up on the other side, and the commanding officer of the defeated forces would come forth. And tradition is, if they had a sword or something, they would present their sword to the conquering army in the, in the person of the commanding general. But in the old days, what they would do is they would then, as a sign of degradation, they would take all the emblems of authority and rank off of the commanding officer of the defeated force, and they'd strip them, not of their clothes, but of all the medals and things, and basically humiliate them in front of the, their soldiers. That's what this word means. In Revelation, Jesus says, I am the one that was dead and I'm now alive. And I have in my hand the keys, which represent authority, of death, hell, and the grave. So he has defeated your enemy in the battle. So you are fighting a foe that's been defeated. But often in warfare, just because the major battle that turned the tide has been won doesn't mean there aren't skirmishes because there's still a battle for you. There's still a battle for the will of God to be done in the earth in this day and age. There's a battle for this church because this church is called to carry out the will of God in this age, which is why we need to pray. And I'll end with Romans chapter 8. Very comforting verse. Well, let's, yeah, let's look at verse 30, 38. Well, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Those all kind of describe a battle or war. For as, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which has been given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Know this, that although you're in a spiritual war, the commander of the army has defeated the foe. There's nothing that can come against you in this warfare that can separate you from God's love for you. You may feel alone. You may feel discouraged. You may feel defeated. But know this tonight that the battle's not over yet and that your, your Lord has gone before you and that nothing you're going through can separate you from His love. Now, what we're going to learn, that's great. This is just the beginning. 
We're going to learn how to fight the spiritual battle that you're in. Because God's will is that you win. In fact, in Colossians it says, For I always lead you in triumph through Christ Jesus. Always. I've learned this secret. I went through something with somebody today, and, you know, it looked like something's not going to happen the way they wanted it to happen. And my first words are, it's not over. It's not over. It's not over. See, with God, it's not over. With God, it's not over. Ask Jairus. Jairus was the synagogue ruler who came to Jesus because his daughter was about to die. And he came to him and said, Master, would you come, my daughter? Jesus said, I'll come. And on his way, some woman with an issue of blood touched him. Jesus stops to minister to her. And now as they're getting up to going on again, one of his servants comes and says, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus then said, well, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. I got ministered. Sorry, it's too late. I, I tried. I'm really sorry. Jesus, I, he didn't say this, but I, be, I believe he spun around and I believe he grabbed Jairus by his robe and says, man, do not fear only believe. In other words, I don't care whether she's dead or not. It's not too late because I'm here and I am the resurrection and the life. So do not 